What is up, Lint Lucid Podcast fans? We are happy to have you back for season eight of the show. This season is brought to you by Vera Health, an amazing cannabis company located right here in Denver, Colorado. Visit our website, litlucid.com, to learn more about our sponsors and to view our previous episodes. And if you're enjoying the show, be sure to share with a friend and give us a review on your favorite platform. Without further ado, here are your hosts, Lucy and Jared. Welcome, everybody, to the Lit and Lucid podcast. We are here in season eight recording another episode of the show. Today, we have a special guest, Marshall Verano. He is a tax partner and CPA with Cone Resnick in California. What's up, Marshall? Well, doing good. How about you? We're doing great. Thanks for being on the show. Thanks for having me. Very pleased to have you today, Marshall. I think our listeners will be pleasantly happy with some of the information we share and and, uh, and provide to them. Yeah, so with tax season upon us, we thought we would get the expert on this show to talk to us about a not-so-fun topic that impacts us all, which is taxes. <laughs> um, so I don't yeah. think uh, we've ever talked or dived into taxes on this show, which is really bad on our part because 280E is a very important part of cannabis businesses that impacts everybody that has a business in cannabis. So today we're going to dive into that topic, learn from an expert. Uh, Marshall has has 35 years of experience in public accounting with expertise in business tax consulting and real estate transactions. He also leads the San Diego Cannabis Practice that's been going on for six years, and he's been with them doing that for three. And they're actually the largest CPA firm working with cannabis across the United States. So if you guys need tax advice, these are probably the people to go to. Um, so with that, Marshall, let's just dive in. What got you interested in cannabis uh, tax law? Well, not law, but like ta- cannabis. Yeah, I think what got me going in it is we started our practice and our, it was one of our hospitality partners who began the tax side of the cannabis practice. And I run our hospitality group here in San Diego and it, it seemed pretty much like a natural flow. So most of the folks that work in our cannabis practice originated in our hotel and restaurant hospitality practice. Oh, nice. So before this, I mean, uh, you talked briefly to us in the pre-show, but Cohen Resnick is a, is a very well-established company, and, and they were kind of one of the first to kind of, uh, to kind of dive into the cannabis industry, I guess, and get their, get their feet wet. Yeah, yeah. We we took a look at it years ago, and our legal department did a deep dive and due diligence and said, hey, you know, here's a growing market. States were getting more and more legal use passed, and we felt like this was an underserved area, and we could we could make a difference in that in this area and so that's why we pretty much put all our resources in there and got up to speed on training and got our groups organized and we we were probably the first of the largest cpa firms to to get into the area yeah absolutely and i know um as with any ancillary companies uh due diligence is really important and and I know, uh, coming from somebody who's worked in the cannabis industry, we're, we're pretty stoked to see traditional agencies and traditional companies kind of step into the cannabis mix because the cannabis industry is, 
you know, as its own, there's stigmas attached to it. And then even more so, we'll, we'll discuss a little bit more with 280E and such. But um, it's a very unique industry where I don't think um, anybody was just going to be blindly kind of walking in nonchalantly and, and saying, you know, let's start a cannabis business today. There's a lot that goes into cannabis businesses. And um, as a lot of operators find out, uh, the tax is, is a pretty big issue with cannabis, whether it's local excise tax or just filing your taxes at the end of the year. Um, it's a big deal. So I know a lot of companies are probably very happy to see a, an established firm like yourself bring along your, your assets and your team and, and uh, everything that goes along with it. Yeah, correct. I mean, I think we've seen the, the industry has evolved quite a lot over the past few years. And, and quite frankly, you have a lot of private offices and some private equity groups putting lots of money into the cannabis industry. And so they're only going to do that if they feel comfortable with the financial statements that are being produced and that the companies they're going to put their money in are, are legitimate and, and are want to operate that way that makes sense so just um just as like an overview what all does your firm kind of handle mainly i mean it's clearly not just filing tax returns and and calling it a day and, and moving off the rest of the year you guys are pretty well involved year around with different services you offer companies uh, what are some of those services you offer cannabis businesses yeah i think for cannabis businesses and even for for regular businesses it's really our consulting and advisory services that are the most important. I, I think, obviously, everybody needs tax compliance and, and audit compliance work, but it's helping our clients be more efficient, drive more profits to the bottom line, and give them ideas on how to do that. So that's, I think, where we add most value. And the good thing is, is we're, we're very hands-on, so we're not one of the biggest firms in the country. So we operate more like a local firm and provide that hand hand holding, if you will, that sometimes a, a, a new business needs and, and wants. Absolutely. And it kind of takes me back to how we first met. I saw Marshall make a post on um, the National Association of Cannabis Businesses, their message board. And it was, you know, super personable. I enjoyed it. And at the time, you know, I was I had a question about tax and um, the association provided a great messaging board and shot an email to Marshall and super helpful. The next thing I know, I was on the phone with Marshall and we were discussing some stuff. And um, okay. you know, that's just that's just a small you know antidote. But I think um, it kind of resonates what Cohen Resnick and the rest of your colleagues are all about, really. And um, you know, taxes can be a scary thing for some of us that don't understand it. So having somebody who uh, is personable and and diligent in their work uh, it makes our life a lot easier. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, well, let's let's just dive in. Um, for a lot of people, I don't know if they know what 280E is. So can you just explain to our listeners what that means? Sure, sure. So 280E is an IR uh, internal revenue code section. And basically, it, it came about back in 1982 when a convicted drug offender was also audited by the IRS. And Basically, he wanted to deduct all his expenses of his illegal business, and the government didn't like that. They didn't think that was right, and so 280E was implemented soon after and basically said if, you, if your business traffics in a Schedule One or Schedule Two drug under the Controlled Substances Act, then we're not going to let you have anything other than your direct cost of goods sold as a deduction. 
And for non-accountants, basically what that means is no general and administrative expenses, no advertising, nothing except the direct costs of your inventory. And they also disallow any tax credits, and there's lots of tax credits out there available to regular businesses. That's pretty so, that's pretty so what? So that that's kind of the general rule, and unfortunately, what it does is it it makes putting aside state taxes, it could make a cannabis business subject to an effective federal tax rate of as high as seventy percent. Yeah, which which is crazy. And that's a lot. A business uh, killer for sure. Oh my god. Yeah. And so we. I mean, it, it it's. Pr- it's pretty burdensome because then when you layer in state tax and then the excise taxes, it, it's just it's just incredible. Absolutely, because that's just on the uh, the income portion, correct? Yes. Yeah. So then a lot of these a lot of these operators already have um, they have local licensing fees on top of a lot of them have local uh, excise tax as long as state excise tax. Um, yep. And so, I mean, that's already taxes cutting out of their income that they have to pay just for operations. And then on top of that, they're having the IRS saying, you made some money this year, let's take 70% of that. That can be a, a huge hindrance to, to business growth, to say the least. Absolutely. And I, and I think part of 280E is it really depends on what type of cannabis business you have. So if you think about a cultivation or production cannabis business. Those companies, they may not be impacted by 280E that much because when you think about it, they're they're growing the cannabis, they're manufacturing the products. So probably the majority of their costs are related to the production of that inventory. Now, if you go down to say a retail dispensary, Mm -hmm. it's a little bit more of a problem, right? Because they have cost that would be deductible for the purchase of the cannabis products. But think about everything else that goes on in a dispensary. You got your bud tenders, you got all the advertising, none of that is deductible. And then for a distributor, it's probably even a much larger problem because a distributor doesn't really have any cost related to inventory and they're still considered trafficking in cannabis. So, Depending on where you are on the the chain, it can be more of a burden than not. And the key with 280E is understanding what is allowed as cost of goods sold. And basically, that is discussed in Code Section 471, which says, hey, certain costs are allowed to be considered attributable to your inventory. So you really need a CPA to help you negotiate that going through your chart of accounts and identifying what are good costs and what aren't. Yeah, I was just going to say that is exactly why you need an expert to help you through this process, uh, to know all those rules and regulations. Um, I know here in Denver, we hear that story all the time in regards to dispensaries. The taxes are just so burdensome on them. And a lot of companies are going under and, you know, these larger corporations are coming in and taking over these small mom and pop stores. And it's just not feasible for them to continue business. I mean, those taxes are just crazy. Yeah, and I think I think what you see, quite honestly, is the federal 
section, their federal provisions, is really at odds. It's what uh, what's happening out there. I mean, you have 11 or so states that have recreational use. You got another 22 that have some sort of medicinal use. So many of the states are are on board with legal cannabis, yet the federal government hasn't changed the law yet, and the problem the problem is is even even at the state level, it's not. On, it's not the same in every state. For example, Colorado, where you all are, they don't they don't comply to 280E. So they treat a cannabis business just like any other business. California, where I'm at, until the next year, 2020, California only allowed deductions for cannabis companies if they were what's called a C corporation. If you were a pass-through entity, 280E applied to you. The governor finally changed that. So for 2020, there's going to be no difference. They're going to let all deductions be deductible. But some states, it's different. I didn't know that. That's really interesting. And so that's one thing that I thought that actually saved a lot of these cannabis companies is having that protection of the state level taxes. But that's clearly not the case. No, no. And we we can maybe chat later in the the podcast, but there are a couple bills that are out there that will make things more in line to what's happening in the states. But we can talk about that a bit later if you want. Well, that was kind of my question. Is there anything happening on the federal level to, you know, change 280E or is it more going to be at the state where they're making some changes and you're still going to have the overarching problem with the feds? Yeah, so actually there's three bills that are out there, and, and the good thing is they're, they have bipartisan support, except they've, unfortunately, not much is happening in the federal government right now anyway, But and there's a few folks that are kind of stumbling blocks on some of these bills, but there's three bills that are really important that, that we need passed in one form or another. The, the first is the Safe Banking Act. And the Safe Banking Act really just says banks, they're going to give banks regulatory authority that they will not get prosecuted if they deal with legal cannabis operations. Because right now what you have, and and you all are probably aware of this, is a cannabis company most of the time can't get banked because the big banks, the Wells, the B of A's, all of these companies don't want to risk an impact to the rest of their portfolio if they get hit with a money laundering charge. So they're they're not in the game and they won't be in the game until the federal government passes something like the Safe Banking Act. So right now what you see is most of your cannabis companies are banked by uh, state chartered banks or credit unions because they're, they're willing to be more aggressive. I mean, there is no federal law prohibiting banks to deal with cannabis companies. It's just the bigger boys don't want to take the risk. So that if that passes, that will help. Another one is the States Act, which is, um, Lucy, this is kind of what you were alluding to, is the States Act would say that the federal government will allow legality if cannabis is legal in the state. So if, if you're in a state where it's legal on the state side, then the federal government will also allow 
legality and have no 280e restriction so that would be a huge one yeah but honestly i think the the most significant bill that that we need to be passed it's called the more act m-o-r-e and the more act basically deschedulizes cannabis Mm -hmm. and i think once you get uh, cannabis deschedulized 280 doesn't apply there's no banking uh limitations and everything interstate commerce opens up everything opens up because it's it's not a schedule one drug Mm -hmm. Yeah, that'd be nice. The other ones just kind of seem like a band-aid just to get you to that decriminalization step. Correct. And that's it. The more the more act is really uh, has other aspects of it because it basically wipes clean um, some low level convictions and um, has a lot of social equity provisions in there. So, I mean, that's really a, a good one if it if it would get passed. So my question then, since clearly a lot of these larger banks are staying out of this, then that kind of does show that the federal government is standing strong with, with their enforcement on these things. And, and you mentioned money, money laundering charge. I mean, clearly there's some type of uh, some seriousness there, or you know, a lot of these banks would just do this. Well, you know, I, I think it's, it's like anything. I, I think if you talk to any credit union or state chartered bank, they still have to do their due diligence on whoever they service. So they're going to make sure that the operator is licensed, that they're reporting income, that they're doing things above board. They're definitely going to do that. I just think the bigger banks, to them, it's not as big of a piece of pie for them, so they just don't want to risk the impact uh, against the rest of their portfolio. That's why they're staying out and just going to wait and see what happens. The problem is, what that does is, one, it pretty much makes a cannabis industry, a, a cash economy, because yeah. you can't have credit cards. I mean, you can have, there are some operators that do debit card type things, but you can't have credit cards. So people have to bring in cash, which is dangerous, right? Mm-hmm. You don't, you don't want to be walking in an operation that has hundreds of thousands of dollars of cash in there. And two, for my clients, the fees that the credit unions and the state chartered banks charge are really high because mm-hmm. there's no competition. Yeah, yeah absolutely. So and my, I know, my it, clients are paying thousands and thousands of dollars a month to get banking facilities. That's rough. That's yeah, rough. we even see that just like on the payment processor side. You know, a lot of people are getting shut down from PayPal and Square and things like that. And all the alternatives exactly. are not that great in terms of processing fees. Yeah, it just adds another you know wrinkle to your business and another step that you have to go through. And those steps always cost money. That's true. That's true. Yeah. And, and that, that's where I think people, maybe if they were maybe on the the black market side before and now they're starting to be legal they don't understand the complexity and the cost of trying to operate a legal legal operation and are you seeing that in california because i know in california especially we've had some guests on in the past and they've talked about the black market you know a lot of people are just honestly not switching over uh because of all of these fees is that still true Yeah, and see, I I think that's another problem that, at least in the state of California, the the state government really didn't think about because what's happening is, you're right, there are so many illegal operations in California, the police just can't stop all these pop-up shops. I mean, these things will open up, get shut down, and then 
two weeks later, they'll open up two weeks, two, two blocks down the road. And, and that hurts the legal operator, right? Because these illegal ones are not paying any taxes. Mm-hmm. So they're charging less. So they're pulling customers away from the people that are trying to do the right thing. And, and the state government, at least in California, has realized this because their projection of cannabis tax revenue was significantly lower than what they anticipated. And I, I really think it's because of the black market. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. I saw a stat somewhere that may have came out of uh, Nikon last week about something like 75% of all cannabis sales may still be on the black market. That's an astounding thing. Exactly. Yeah. That is, that's quite a I bit. Mean, I mean, I think... I think Overall, to me, legal cannabis, I mean, you're never going to stop somebody who maybe goes from his buddy down the street and takes care of whatever he needs from that person. But the new customer of cannabis companies are folks that don't really understand the products and want to go somewhere where they know, hey, there's no pesticides on this stuff. Mm -hmm. There's nothing bad in here. We know the the strength because it's on the label and it's been tested. I mean, they want to feel comfortable that what they're getting is not going to hurt them. Yeah, I like that you mentioned that because what happened recently really kind of uh, really kind of helps to back up your point there with the vape crisis. Um, yes. A lot of the vape crisis. I mean, that it was kind of a black stain, a black a black stain on the cannabis industry for the most part. But what they kind of deduced in the long run is a lot of those vapes may have been purchased on the black market where they didn't have exactly. uh, a regulatory oversight, testing, things like that. And so we have some folks here locally that are actually saying they're seeing a large rebound in their vape sales where um, they almost think that they're getting more consumers from the black market now that are switching to a regulated market to purchase a, a product that they can trust. So that's kind of a small win for the cannabis industry. It's um, And I think it goes to show that uh, consumers do demand those products that are that are health, healthy and, and safe for them. Exactly. You, you hit it right on the head. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that's even more reason, you know, the, a lot of these um, these bills that are in the legislature right now that need to be passed, I think all those issues are going to have to start adding up at some point to help, you know, usher those bills through the House um, because you do have, you know, the issue with banking is a huge one. Um, I th- I personally, Lucy and I, are really behind the quality issues and and pushing for transparency and quality in the cannabis industry for the products. And that's the next one where you can't necessarily have them in the black market. And um, if the black market's still thriving right now, um, we have to find a way to get, you know, clean products in consumers' hands uh, for the long run. So I think decriminalizing it's the only way really to do all those things at once. Yep. Yep. That's true. I like it. Uh, and I'm just curious, I mean, not that I want this to be a political conversation at all, but, you know, since we are into moving into election season and we are talking about legalization, what do you think, like, the next four years means for us? Do you think there's a candidate out there that can push these acts forward if somebody else comes into office? Or what are you seeing kind of for the next four years for companies? Well, I mean, believe it or not, uh, President Trump has actually said he's okay with legalization of cannabis. Um, so... You know, whether it's a Republican or Democrat, I think if we can have the folks in the Senate um, stop kind of blocking these bills from going, the Republican folks in the Senate from stop blocking these bills to go through, I think we will see some positive legislations that will decriminalize cannabis. I really do. Um, I think what uh, what really needs to happen, though, too, is pro-cannabis 
folks need to back one of these bills. I think there was kind of, uh, you know, separation as to, well, should we, we push the SAFE Act, the States Act? And I really think people wanted wanted the Moore Act to be the headliner because I think that takes care of everything. So we just need everybody to back one one bill and I think that will go forward successfully. I don't know if it's going to happen this year, probably not with the elections, but I, I think I think whoever's elected something will happen, you know, maybe late this year or next year. Interesting. I like that yeah. yeah. Yeah, there's a stat that's also being thrown around with um with the support for legalization of marijuana, it's somewhere upwards of two thirds of Americans uh, would like access or, or would like marijuana to be legal. So, um, yep. I think at some point, uh, our policymakers are going to have to look at that and say, you know, it's the will of the people to do this. I think that it's just their job now, and, and possibly what they may be doing is just trying to gather more information and figure out the best way to kind of open the doors to it because. If they do, you know, we haven't even discussed this, but if say if they do go ahead and pass the Moore Act and they decriminalize cannabis, there is a great deal of states who have already um, had votes and they've basically said no to cannabis or they've had governors in their states shut it down. Um, and so decriminalizing cannabis, I think there's still going to be a lot of states and a lot of areas within those states are, that are going to enact their own rights and, and still outlaw cannabis due to the stigma. So I think there's still That's a ways. True. I think there's a ways to go, but I do think, um, you know, there's got to be some... There's got to be a way to, to get some relief for some of these cannabis businesses at some point. Yeah, I, I agree. And I, and I think once that, that starts happening, I mean, if you think about it, once it's descheduled, then you can have interstate commerce. So, you know, you see in some states like Colorado where you guys had just a, a ton of product and you just couldn't sell it all, right? Yeah. So the price was dropping. You know, if you have interstate commerce, that takes care of that. So, I mean... Making it available across state lines, I think, will just really help the business grow. I agree, yeah. And then even looking at a place like California that's been culturally known to produce a lot of the cannabis that's been grown in the black market and shipped across the U.S., I think a state like California would really benefit from interstate commerce as well because there's a lot of northern states that just can't grow cannabis sustainably or in a, in a method or a manner that's true to form. And um, why not just let those people who have been cultivating it for generations just continue to do it and then just find a way to uh, to essentially export it? Mm-hmm. I mean, just like they're doing, you know, uh, Florida oranges. You know, you can't grow Florida oranges in my backyard in, Ca- in Colorado. Uh, I can't grow Idaho potatoes. Mm-hmm. I think at some point cannabis is going to be a product just like that as well. And interstate commerce is the only way to allow that. Mm-hmm. That's true. You know, before we move on, can I just talk about two other things related to federal compliance because they are kind of important? Absolutely, yeah. Okay, so quickly, one thing that operators need to remember is if there's a form 8300, and that's an IRS form that has to be filed within 15 days of a cannabis, well, any business receiving $10,000 or more in cash. So that would impact just about every cannabis industry. And this is a huge compliance issue because if you don't file that 8300 form, the penalty is $100 a day per occurrence. Wow. <laughs> and, and so we've even seen, and, and the form asks for some specific information. So the, the sad part about the form is there's a part of that form which says, who is the person that actually took control of the $10,000 or more of cash? And sometimes 
that's that's the guy driving the truck, right? He's yeah. dropping off the delivery and he gets the cash. Well, if you don't fill out all of his personal information on that form, it's incomplete. And the IRS can say you didn't timely file your form. Oh, yeah. And there's like information for social security numbers and some high level Correct. information on there. <laughs> And sometimes the driver isn't real happy giving that out. So, yeah. I mean, you gotta I you gotta that. think about that. Yeah, I've yeah I had to deal with those a lot, and that was totally an issue. Um, I was that person that was driving, receiving cash. Uh, I could I could tell you that it's not fun. Um, and then I did have right. to backtrack a few times, and and people are not willing at all to provide a lot of that information to you from the other business as well. So, um, I could see why that's an issue, and I could see why that's uh, kind of comes back to bite people in the long run because it is kind of one of those weird things where you don't want the IRS peeping at everything you're doing, but at the same point, uh, you can't afford not to. Yeah, That's right. Uh, and then the other thing I wanted to just say, if, if somebody kind of wants a good primer on 280E and how it works, there's a couple really good cases that uh, the IRS brought, prosecuted that really goes in deep detail on what the cannabis companies did wrong and what they did right. And so I'm just going to mention them, and if folks want to take a look at them, I think they're, they're a good read. Um, one is called the Harborside Case. The other is Alternative Healthcare Advocates. And then the other one is called the CHAMP Case, C-H-A-M-P. And I think these will really give you a good background of the do's and don'ts. Um, there's definitely a few cases out there where... You know, believe it or not, there's still some folks that try to argue that Section 280E is unconstitutional, and you know, you're you're never going to win that battle. So, don't get that aggressive. <laughs> yeah, we've been following some of those, and I know I'm not sure which one, possibly the Champ case or maybe the Alternative Health case, was one of the more recent ones. Um, yes. And there is definitely some interesting stuff. I would highly encourage you to check it out uh, when this episode releases. Well. You can go to litlucid.com. We'll include um, some links to some more information, and Marshall also shared some stuff. So we'll we'll definitely try to give you guys some information because those are all three great cases to look into. Um, it does appear like we're making some headway, though. It's it's not completely clear, uh, and there's still a long way to go. Yep. Um, well, let's just touch base real quick um, since we talked about it before the show. Uh, the 2018 Farm Bill uh, had some impacts on the 280E in regards to hemp farmers. Uh, so do you want to explain to listeners a little bit about that real quick? Yeah, so the, the Farm Bill was really a, a great victory, but unfortunately it has been kind of uh, cut down a little bit. But the, the Farm Bill basically said that companies that sell cannabis or uh, hemp products with less than 0.3% THC are legal. They're not a Schedule 1. They're not subject to uh, 280E because they're not considered a Schedule 1 drug. So what that means is for hemp producers that have legal hemp, they get all the deductions that any other business wants or can take and all the credits that are available. So in that industry, a lot of them use solar energy. There's a huge, there's a 30% solar credit, or it was 30%, but there's still a great credit for uh, putting on solar panels, and there's other credits that are available. So legal hemp companies, I think, have uh, great advantages. 
though one thing that we still don't have and it's just a, a shame is that we still have the FDA and the USDA that have not said hey we're okay with hemp in ingestible products and you know I think when kind of the farm bill passed what you saw is everybody from your local gas station to Walmart were selling hemp products yeah. and the, the, the FDA was saying hey wait a minute we haven't said that putting these in ingestible products is okay mm-hmm. and so these companies just went full bore ahead tons of money went into the, the CBD industry and now what we're seeing is the FDA is actually going against some CBD companies now the ones they're focusing on at this point are people that are making health claims. Right. So typically if a CBD company doesn't say, hey, you know, we're going to cure cancer, or we're going to stop your arthritis, at this point they're probably not going to bother you that much. Yeah. But they still can, and I think it's possible they will start going after other CBD companies. So we really need the FDA and the USDA to come out and say, look, we're going to do our testing and we're going to say, hey, these products may have some side effects. You should consult your physician before you use any of these products, but they should give the okay so that this industry can can grow healthy in a healthy way. I agree, yeah, because that 2018 Farm Bill really did open the door um, on a national scale. And then it's really, like you mentioned, it's really kind of taking a step back now and there's a lot of uncertainty in the market. So some clarification would do a lot of people justice. Absolutely. And it, I don't know, it seems hard to me for me to understand why there wasn't coordination uh, with the passage of the Farm Bill, but I, I guess that's our government for us. <laughs> right. It could be any number of things. <laughs> yeah. Okay, Marshall. Well, thank you so much. You've been so knowledgeable. Uh, we'd like to end our episode with just some general advice for, let's say, some young entrepreneurs looking to enter the industry with a cannabis business or some businesses that are already on board. Uh, what do you suggest uh, some good advice for them? Yeah, I think the main thing, a couple things to think about is, one, make sure you have a good team. Make sure if, if you're going to be more than just a small one dispensary mom and pop shop, make sure you actually have somebody with financial backgrounds, a controller, a CFO, somebody who understands the finances and can set your books and records up in an appropriate manner. Because if you're looking for outside investment, those folks, they're they're not putting money in questionable activities anymore. They want to see your business look like just just like any other business that they invest in. So that's very important. So make sure you're licensed, make sure you're following the rules and have a good team around you. Make sure you have a good compliance person. I talked about the form 8300. Compliance is huge and uh, permitting all of this stuff is really important. So make sure you, you have somebody that knows that. And then finally, I think make sure you're dealing with a CPA firm that has experience in the industry because as we've talked about, 280E is is very painful, but you definitely can minimize its impact if you know what costs are allowable and what costs aren't. 
So I think doing these things will, are, are a good start to success. Yeah. I like that. I think that's all very solid advice. Um, I don't think we've even had somebody touch on the fact that maybe you're the first person you should add to your team is a CFO or somebody who understands the financials. But man, that is something that we're probably going to preach from now on because it's so true. Yeah. Um, Absolutely. And kind of seeing how, uh, and I kind of encourage people to go back and and look at some of those court cases that have happened with a lot of these dispensaries and and other folks. Because what you realize is that um, you could find yourself behind the wall of a hefty penalty from the IRS um, and have no way to basically to pay that back. Um, and so I think starting off from the get-go with a good understanding of what you're getting yourself into and have everything in a row is really the best way to go. I mean, prepared from the start, um, be, do your due diligence, talk with the CPA, have a plan in place. I think those are all solid ways to start. Yeah. Oh, and then I, I forgot about the attorneys, but yeah, definitely get an attorney in your local jurisdiction that understands the permitting and licensing processes because, boy, California is just insane and the compliance at the state level and the local jurisdictional levels is just crazy and unfortunately we do not we do not kind of push all that up to the top it would be great if the state kind of controlled everything and didn't let every little jurisdiction do their own thing with respect to excise taxes but that's where we are in California at this point mm-hmm. Yeah, it just kind of adds, like we mentioned a few times, another wrinkle to business where um, the more awareness and understanding you have prior to getting in, uh, probably going to serve you well down the road. Yeah. Exactly. Well, this has been a productive conversation, Marshall. I know I learned a lot. Uh, I think our guests are going to be pleasantly surprised, and, and they're really appreciative of the information you shared. Um, hopefully, we've saved a couple of business owners' butts and kind of <laughs> helped steer them in a new direction here. Um, but we, uh, either way, appreciate all of your time, Marshall, and, and sharing your expertise. Yes. Well, I appreciate you all having me, and uh, if anybody has any questions, just, just let me know or uh, reach out to the two of you. Yeah, you can find uh, Cone Resnick online, I'm sure, and Marshall's profiles on that page as well, so you can reach out to him directly, and then we'll have some resources on our website when the episode goes live. Uh, but thank you so much, Marshall. We really appreciate it. I think this is a very important topic that all business owners need to be aware of, whether they're in cannabis or not, because taxes impacts us all. So as we get ready for tax season, uh, make sure you file those taxes. And if not, talk to a CPA who can help you through that process. There you go. <laughs> all right, you guys. Awesome. With that, I'm Lit. I'm Lucid. And that's it. Laters. Using the knowledge they gained in the pharmaceutical industry, Vera Health is transforming the CBD space with products that actually work. With their scientific formulations and a world-class team, Vera Health creates CBD products with superior bioavailability for endocannabinoid system support. Vera Health products include CBD oral micromist sprays, CBD topical salves, and CBD soft gel capsules. See what everyone is talking about and try for yourself at www.verahealth.com. Vera, because it works.